been encouraged in this regular theme that keeps coming up of anchoring up our thoughts in heaven, setting our minds, shaping our lives around things that last, or establishing our value system according to heavenly realities, allowing that to shape our thinking. We just um, sung together, Lord, as we come to your word, shape our minds with your holy word and help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. Allowing ourselves to be shaped by these eternal things, these things that last where Christ is seated, shaping our marriages, our families, the way we interact with one another in our church here and then also with our community. With our minds and our hearts anchored in the things that last forever. Church, we're going to need this as I've prepared more and more. Worship means to assign and then also express reverence and value and esteem and priority to something. That's what worship means. So biblical worship, therefore, is to assign and express reverence and value and esteem and priority to the Lord our God and the truth that he speaks to us. So earthly worship then is to turn our assignment and our expression of reverence and value and esteem and priority to things that don't last. To earthly things that we often think we're in control of. Even what we read tonight, we, we look for happiness from the things that we worship. And when we turn our attention to earthly things and we worship them, the Bible calls that idolatry. And it's condemned by the first two commandments. But it's also something to which our heart is prone. True? It's like a fish. We're intrigued with golden flashy things. We were reminded last week that our worship, what we worship, shapes our living. If we worship earthly things, shapes how we live and interact with others. Likewise, if we worship God and we focus on eternal things, it shapes the way we interact with others. Today we're going to study Psalms 57. So like Psalm 34, 57 is another psalm that was penned in the cave of Adullam. Last week we briefly looked at an overview of Psalm 34. David was on the run from Saul, finds himself caught between two kings who want his life. He's able to escape and then he runs to this cave and he's writing out, pouring out his expression of gratitude for God saving his life. The more of that context is online from last week, so I don't want to go into too much more of that for this week. But if you, um, but what I would like to do is back up even farther than the context of Psalm 34 and 57 where David writes from this cave 
and take a look at the entire book of Psalms and its context in order to get some um, history and grounding for the passage that we're studying today. Before I do that, just let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. As Jason prepared our hearts, leading us through Psalms 150, we're here to both praise you and then to be shaped and have our minds shaped by you. To have our values shaped by you. Some of us need to make fine-tuned adjustments and others need to completely turn and make large adjustments today. And then there's people in between. Regardless, Lord, none of us are there. We all desperately need you. And that's why we're here. To be shaped by you. And then to give you thanks for your faithfulness in shaping us. So we pray for you to do that even now. Amen. Okay, so the book of Psalms is split into five mini books. So the section that we're in today is actually book two. So if you turn to the beginning of this section that we're in, which is Psalm 42, you don't have to do this, but if you do it, and if you look right before Psalm 42, it will tell you, it will have a title up there, it'll say book two. There's five books. We're in this second book. This section goes from Psalm 42 all the way to 72. And if you get to the last verse of this book, book number 2, chapter 72, the very last verse reads like this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now something to this effect of praising the Lord or blessing the Lord ends every mini book in the book of Psalms. Every five, every one of the five books ends with a praise, a blessing to the Lord. So the theme that runs through the Psalms, and many of you will not be surprised by this, but the theme that runs consistently throughout the book of Psalms is this idea of giving praise to the Lord, or we could say it living gratefully. And this theme of gratefulness or praise is captured in every mini-book of the larger meta-narrative of Psalms. Now, after the fifth book, there's a beginning. There's actually Psalms 1 and 2 are an intro. And then the last four Psalms, five actually, Psalm 146 to 150 are a conclusion. And then the five books of the Psalms are in between. The last conclusion, Psalm 146 through 150, is actually a mini-representation of all of the Psalms, and it too is split into five sections. And each of these sections of this mini-book, at the end in the conclusion, ends with hallelujah. Halle meaning praise, Yah, the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now fast forward to the end of the book, and this book of Psalms closes with what we read today. Praise the Lord. And if you missed it, you were sleeping. 
right? The repetition, praise him, praise him, praise the Lord, praise him here, praise him there with these instruments, with that instruments. The goal of the book of Psalms is to teach us, to lead us in praising the Lord. So it's easy to see the summary of the Psalms as praising the Lord. Therefore, some uh, scholars have called the book of Psalms a hymn book, which is partly true, but it's actually more than that. The Psalms were compiled after the Babylonian exile. David writes 75 of the Psalms. They're in the beginning, but he doesn't write all of them. So that's written after the exile. So think about this. The Israeli, the Jewish temple has been destroyed. Jews are taken away from their people and away from their homes. They're scattered all over. And so in many respects, the book of Psalms is meant to be a virtual temple. It's a place where these scattered believers in exile can meet with, hear from, and then pray to the Lord. The Psalms are aimed to help God's scattered people to speak with God and then to have Him speak back. The book of Psalms actually covers the entire Bible in a story form and in a poet, in poetic form. And so again, the Psalms are aimed to help God's scattered people speak with God, hear from God, and praise God in both good times and bad, and to wait for Him to establish His eternal temple, His kingdom. So David is writing before the temple is actually built, but he's longing for a temple where he lives with the presence of the Lord. Over and over we hear David saying this, I long for your presence, O Lord, like a deer pants for water, so my soul longeth after you, O Lord. He's longing for a temple, for a house where he can live with the Lord. And then after the exile, the temple was built, now it's destroyed, and what are his readers waiting for? It's still relevant to them. They're waiting for the temple to be rebuilt so that we can live and breathe and be God's people once again. And now, friends, three, four thousand years later, we are reading it and it still has relevance to us because we're a scattered people and this book helps us to hear from the Lord, to pray back to the Lord while we, the church, His people in exile are waiting for the Lord to establish His kingdom. And this is exactly what we find David teaching us to do as he scribbles out some praise in this cave. Again, he's experienced an escape from death, not once but twice. He's got some reprieve. He's in a cave. Cave. He is safe, but he is still displaced from his home, and his trial is not over. And so still in great hardship, and with his life still threatened, David enters into God's presence in this little tiny cave 
He gets his mind on eternal things. And he praises the Lord. It's not about circumstances. We need to hear this. Our ability to praise the Lord is not about circumstances. Now Psalm 57 is split into two parts. Verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 11. Now like the overall book of Psalms, these two sections, 1 through 5, 6 through 11, both end with the refrain to praise the Lord. Or more specifically in this case it says this, God be exalted and His glory be over all the earth. So there's two sections, and actually a third one. We're going to talk about that in in a minute. There's two sections, but there's three active participants in this psalm. There's God Himself, there's David's enemies, and then there's David. And so we have this these first kind of two main sections, one through five, where David appeals to the Lord's mercy and where we see God as the primary character acting on David's behalf. And then the second section, verses 6 through 11, David is responding to God's faithful activity with resolve and praise. Lord, be merciful to me, be merciful to me, Look at what you're doing. Look at the good you're doing. Now I'm going to respond to your faithfulness by doing something in response to what you're doing. But overlapping in the middle of this whole passage is this section about David's enemies. And it's really interesting. Guys, there's so many layers here. The Bible is so wise and profound, you realize it could only be written by God himself. Right, And I'm skipping over this. But right in the middle of what God is doing and what David is doing, think about it in concentric circles. I put this in your notes. But there's this overlapping reality of what, of what David's enemies are doing. They're active. But literally, right smack in the middle of what his enemies are doing, there's the refrain that's put right there in the middle. God be exalted and his glory be over all the earth. Right in the middle of what his enemies are doing. So look at Psalm 57 with me. We're going to read this as we're going through, but I want you to see this in its context. So he's talking, he requests mercy from the Lord. He cries out to the Most High. Verse 2, who fulfills his purposes for me? That verse rescued me three weeks ago. God will fulfill his purposes for us, church. It's really helpful. And then in verse 3, he says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now here's this overlapping part in the middle. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now we're back to the enemies. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into themselves. They have fallen into it themselves, Selah. Right in the middle of David's enemy's activities is this overarching reality. 
God be exalted and his glory be over all the earth. David's enemies are conspiring to take him out. They purpose to do evil to them, to him. But they are up against God's purposes for him. And they will lose. Right in the middle of his enemy's plans. David, filled with the Holy Spirit, penning the very words of God, says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. David's enemies' plans are interrupted by praise. The enemy's plans for you are interrupted by praise. Church, the enemy has purposes and plans for you, but they are up against the purposes and plans of God. He will lose. This praise of God interrupts or changes the way you view the plans of man. You hear me? Praise of God interrupts. I'm not talking about this magical incantation, right, where we do this sometimes, where bad things are happening and we think, okay, I'm just going to praise the Lord and it'll interrupt man's plans. It's not what I'm talking about. But our praise of the Lord interrupts when we start experiencing difficulty from people or evil or trial or affliction of any kind. We start experiencing the pressure from these things. Praise in our minds interrupts what these things can do to us. Because we remember that God has plans for us. He has purposes, intentions for us. We learn something important here, not only from David's words, but also from the way he structures his psalm. There's four things that we should learn here in not just what David writes, but how he structures his writing. The first thing is this, that David acts as a timeless teacher, exalting God and longing for his presence. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful for me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. David's longing is for the presence of the Lord in the midst of the trial, not for the trial to go away. When David prays for mercy, and remember, this is a real man in a cave that's having real trouble, and he asks for mercy not just once but twice. He means it. He really needs it. But the way he expects mercy to come to him is not in the form of the trial going away. The way he expects God's mercy to come to him is in the presence of the Lord himself. And I'm going to hide in you. 
I'll take refuge in you till the storms of destruction pass. So the thing we learn here is that David wants us, the Lord long for his presence right in the middle of our trouble. The second thing we learn is that David willfully focuses on what God says about himself and what God says about his plans, not what his own senses tell him. David chooses to focus his mind on what God says about himself and what God's plans are, not his personal experience. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. The third thing we learn is that God's presence is central in David's enemy's activities. Right in the middle, he inserts it. Because David believes that God is active and sovereign and deserving his praise, not before, not after. Don't we do this? We wait for the storm to be over, then we'll thank the Lord. Right in the middle, he sees God's presence. God's presence is central in David's enemy's activities. Praise interrupts enemy activity. And then lastly, in seeing God's presence and power, David is free. He is free to develop a grateful life and right living right in the middle of difficulty. Right when his life is threatened. So, now with those things in mind, let's walk through the passage and we're going to make some observations. Again, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge, in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame Him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. So again, here David is seeking the mercy of the Lord. And again, he expects... His mercy to come in the form of His presence. David is sure that his cries for help will land in the sovereign purposes of the Lord that are designed for him. His cries for help will land in the sovereign purposes of the Lord that God is intending to complete in him. I cry out to the Most High God, to God who fulfills His purposes for me. So in these first five verses, David willfully chooses, he willfully chooses to remember who God is, what His promises are, and His covenant love. In verse 3 he says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, he will send out his 
In Hebrew, it's chesed, his covenant-keeping love, where he cannot say no once he is committed. His steadfast, it's interpreted his steadfast love. And David chooses to remember that these things are true about God. Notice that David does not rehearse all the times that God has seemed to have failed him. And he could have. David could have been sitting in the cave feeling very sorry for himself. Recounting his perceived, God's perceived lack of faithfulness on David's part. It could have went something like this. Oh, first I'm anointed king, which you technically did, Lord, even when Saul was still king, which really confuses me. Then, because you did that, Saul gets jealous and starts turning people against me. I'm trying to be faithful to him and honor him like you've told me to do. And so I'm playing the harp for him. And he hurls a spear at me. And then while I'm um, trying to still continue to do good unto him, this bipolar maniac gives me his wife in marriage in one day, and the next day tries to send out his son, my best friend, to kill me. I flee to another city, find myself in trouble with another king. I have to act like a complete nut job to get myself out. Now I'm holed up in this, this stinking, wet, damp cave, and you call this being your anointed king? Some king I am, running around, hiding in caves. What's going on, Lord? Where are you? Why aren't you protecting me? Friends, when you enter into trials, which way does your mind go? But rather, David seeks God's truth. Verse 2, he will fulfill his purposes for me. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and save me. Verse 3b, he will put to shame those who trample me. The end of verse 3, he will send out his steadfast, his covenant-keeping love and his faithfulness. God is the central figure in this first section, and this is what he's going to do. And David willfully chooses to remember God's covenant-keeping love and his goodness to him. And so he is full of great. Now the middle section. This overlapping section where David's enemies are acting. He says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. So even while David rehearses God's faithfulness, his enemies are still active. David has been and looks forward to see a continued trampling by the sons of men, verse 3. He feels himself in the midst of lions and fiery beasts. 
And in particular, his life is in danger, but he's also feeling the weight of their words against him. Their teeth are spears. Their tongues are swords. They are speaking lies and slandering and defacing David. The danger is not just physical. He is also being hurt personally. We've experienced this, yes? This enemy that's being written about has also also intentionally made efforts to make David's life miserable and to catch him in traps and snares and to set him up for danger. Set a net, dig a pit. The enemy has been active. If you're reading, you'll notice that in two different places there's this word Selah in there. I want you to take notice that it comes at the end of he who tramples on me, verse 3, and they have fallen into it themselves, verse 6. So here's this word right at the end of his enemies doing. Now there's some speculation around what this word Selah means. Now scholars know for sure that it means to pause and to wait. But they're not sure if that's a musical term and they're just telling the instruments to kind of, you know, give that, you know, emphatic wait, pause until it starts up again. Or if it's supposed to also go with the lyrics and get the worshiper or the reader to pause and to stop and to think. Now, most of my study, it seemed to point to the word directing to both an instrumental, an instrumental refrain, a pause from the music, but also to get the worshipers to stop and to listen and to pause and to reflect on what was just said. The Bible Project says that they, God wants us to ponder slowly. But it's interesting that he wants us to ponder slowly at the end of enemy activity. But the reality of David's situation needs to be pondered slowly. I really believe what the Lord's wanting us to do is to kind of do what some of us have been doing with a lot of the stuff that's going on in our news today. And some of these people who are protesting in the favor of people that are hacking people up and killing babies. Because you just want them to go, wait, 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 wait. Just stop and think for a minute, right? Isn't that what we say? Like, use your brain. Like, you're not, you're not even being consistent with reality at all. Like, stop and think. If we put you in a plane and shipped you over there, they're not going to like you, right? You're going to end up dead. You're not thinking. Stop. Just stop and think. And I believe what the Lord wants us to hear is oftentimes when our enemies are pressing in and we're being afflicted, we get frenetic, don't we? We're wanting to get out of it. We're wanting to solve this problem. We're going we're gonna to get on the, our offensive game. We're going to start trying to press in our agenda and get things done. And the Lord's like, I want you to stop. 
Think long and hard. Because it's not about your plans. It's about mine. It's not about what your enemies are doing. It's about what I'm doing. The reality of David's situation needs to be pondered slowly, but not reality from an earthly vantage, but a heavenly one. This enemy is intentionally called children of men. They're children of men. Mere men. Their intended purposes against David are in vain. Again, they are up against the purposes of the living God. Any victories that seem to exist over David are temporary. They will not last. Those who trample David, they will be put to shame. They will fall into their own pits. Selah, think long and hard about it because it's true. Don't get caught up in the power of your enemies. Get caught up in the power of the living God from whom you seek mercy. The word from the Lord is this. The purpose of the Lord for David is this. And this is what he chooses to bring back to memory. David will be saved from all, all of his afflictions. So David is settled. Even in danger. And God is to be exalted. And that is just what David intends to do. So now we enter into the third section. David says, verse 7, My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. This is echo. This is echoing his two appeals for mercy. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. He works himself focusing on truth, and now he answers back to this call for mercy with, my heart is steadfast, my heart is steadfast. You have heard me, Lord. You have spoken twice. I'll respond twice. I will sing and make melody. Then he says in verse 8, awake my glory. Meaning, hey, my whole person. Hey, every fiber in me, wake up. O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. My voice will be the first one that breaks the morning silence with praise to the Lord. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Look what happens here, team. You see what happens to David? David sees God for who he is. Therefore, he sees his enemy in the appropriate light. He sees his circumstances in light of God's faithfulness to him. His troubles, his enemies, he sees them for what they are. And look what happens to him. His whole life is engaged to gratefulness, to praise, to worshiping God. Worship shapes living. And so in seeking things above, 
David finds his heart, his whole person, steadfast. Doubly steadfast, steadfast squared, established, fixed, ready. His life is filled with gratitude. He's going to sing. He's going to make melody. He's going to tell the nations. He's sitting in a cave, still with a death sentence, disenchanted from his home. And pretty pretty soon, every ragtag warrior and leftover vagabond is going to converge on this cave and become part of his group. And he'll lead them. But not yet. He's still waiting. But in the midst of waiting, he sees something more glorious than his difficulty. David uses his mind to engage truth. David seeks truth. And then he sets his mind on it. And then this awakens his whole person to grateful living and praise. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I've appreciated uh, Ian loading these sermons up, whether it's me or somebody else, and access to them. How many people I'm having say to me, man, I was listening to the sermon this week. It's really encouraging. But this recalling of truth, and whether it's from here or whether you're listening to the sermons, I throw out applications as a way to consider applying God's Word. But some of you are having the Spirit speak to you right now in ways that you're like, man, I really want to grow and change in that area. You need to pursue that and follow that. But in the absence of that, I want to help you consider some ways to make application here. And so I'm going to give you four of them. We want to consider how to respond to this passage. One of the first things we can do is this. When you enter into trouble... When you face afflictions, when you experience the presence of an enemy, seek his presence more than the absence of your affliction. When you enter into trouble, seek his presence more than the absence of the difficulty. And what we learn from David is this, our troubles are given perspective when we take refuge in the Lord. You will get perspective on your trial when you cuddle up under his wings and feel his protective power. Second thing, this mimics an application from last week, and it's really good for us to have these repetitions. But regularly recall the activity of the Lord on your behalf. You have 
a life and death story. You were condemned to death. You deserve wrath. You've gotten grace. Regularly recall the activity of the Lord on your behalf and the purposes to which He has for you. In the middle of these do's, these things we can be applying, here's a couple of don'ts. Don't get stuck rehearsing your views of God's unfaithfulness. Don't, don't, don't recall activities in your life where you're trying to prove to God that He's not worth your trust. Have you ever done that? Don't draw attention to your circumstances as a way to prove His lack of faithfulness. If you do, you're wrong. You're out of line. And it's not going to go well for you. I say that from personal experience. We no longer need to ask, where are you, God? What are you doing? He's right in the middle. He will fulfill his purposes for you. Anchor up in him. Seek his truth. Set your mind on it. The third thing we can do is to interrupt enemy plans with gratefulness. And by the way, this is connected to the first two, right? This is not a magical little rabbit's foot thing that Christians do. But if you're really seeking his presence more than the absence of your affliction and you're recalling the gospel, the response to that is rejoicing in God. Interrupt enemy plans with gratefulness. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory fill the earth. And lastly, one of the ways we can respond to this passage is to choose to use your mind to stir up resolve and gratitude and right living and praise. Just like David did. This is kind of a summary of the first thing. But choose to use your mind to stir up resolve and gratitude and right living and praise. Lord, we recognize that our job is not to navigate the details of our circumstances and to create for ourselves a way of quick escape. We've tried that before. Sometimes we even make it last longer. Other times we miss what you have for us in the middle because we're so busy trying to do your job. Our job is to seek your presence, rest in it, give you praise, abide in you, and watch you fulfill your purposes for us. And even this we cannot do alone. We are desperate for um, your help, which you are giving to us. We ask for the strength to respond in faithful obedience and joyful praise for your 
covenant love and your steadfast faithfulness. Father, thank you for the way that you have saved us and that you are saving us. And may our hearts be filled with gratefulness, with thanksgiving, with gratitude for your presence and all that you're doing in our lives. We ask you to hear us and to help us. And we also give you praise for what we've already seen you do and know you're about to do. For your glory and for our great joy. We pray in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.